Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek, uh, joined as always by my co-host, Danny Bessner. Uh, we're here to do a little uh, post-election special on the Brazilian presidential runoff last night. Uh, we're lucky to be joined by two distinguished guests. Returning to the program, we have Ben Fogel, a historian at NYU. Uh, and joining him and joining us, we have Andrew Fishman, uh, who want me to introduce him as a journalist from The Intercept Brazil, but is in fact the president and co-founder of The Intercept Brazil, and I'm not going to let him uh, get away without uh, us uh, elucidating all of his imp- titles. Uh, so uh, with that, I want to thank both of you uh, for coming on the program, especially Andrew. We kind of dumped this on you at short notice, so thank you for uh, for joining us to talk about this momentous event. Yeah, happy to. Uh, so, to, no, sorry, Ben. Go ahead. I was going to say it's good news story for once. Yeah, for once, we don't do good news on this show really very often, so we're very excited to to get the chance to do that. Uh, why don't you guys, uh, you know, take us through uh, what happened yesterday? We can get into the. Uh, I want to get into the attempted shenanigans separately, but just give people uh, the overview of. Uh, what happened yesterday and and you know talk if you want about uh, you're both there you're both in the in the mix there so uh, talk about what you uh, saw as as the day unfolded okay well um, yesterday uh, basically to sum it up um, Lula won a pretty narrow victory uh, but with a, by about two million votes uh, margin of just over one percent um, it was a little bit tighter than some of the polling indicated, but uh, there are a number of reasons for that, including shenanigans, which we can expand on earlier. But uh, it was a very tense afternoon after sort of normal morning here in Sao Paulo. Sun was out, which was unexpected. People were smiling. There was sort of a festive mood. And then there was some uh, shenanigans in the afternoon. And then the votes started coming in, tense. But uh, I was on the streets in a couple of places, and it was basically like a carnival vibe. And then when finally the Lula overtook Bolsonaro in the count, uh, everything exploded. People were losing, losing it on the streets, tears, chants, singing. There were, couple, I mean, maybe a couple hundred thousand people on Avenida Paulista where people go for these final rallies. It was really intense. And I mean, it was a very emotional experience for a lot of people. It felt like the last four years were over. They'd been vindicated. The Brazil that once knew is sort of back. And, uh, yeah, and also, I mean, so basically I'm just going to give a short uh, sum up. I think maybe Andrew can speak about sort of the things that happened yesterday of the post-election responses. So, firstly, I should note that uh, Bolsonaro has not said anything in public. Uh, In fact, uh, he's been briefly glimpsed leaving the presidential palace, but no one saw him. Yeah, Ben, actually... Before you you get into that, we should. I want to specify that we're recording this on Monday, October thirty first at noon Eastern, uh, so that when people listen to this and Bolsonaro may have given a statement later on, uh, you will you will know exactly when we're recording this. I just wanted to be clear on that before we went into uh, the day's events. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. I mean, so basically, like no one's heard from him. His sons haven't been posting on social media. Uh, there's really been radio silence. Uh, 
the main thing is because he's been threatening, of course, as we discussed before, a sort of coup attempt is that the major allies, including the Speaker of the Congress, one of the most powerful men in Brazil, his former ministers, uh, you know, co- high profile senators have all sort of said that we respect democratic uh, sovereignty. Uh, we're gonna, you know, even high profile preachers have said, oh, we God bless Lula, let's hope he does good. So there's sort of general feeling that the rats are jumping from the ship. In fact, the only sign uh, we've seen since last night of social media activity from Bolsonaro is the fact he and his wife unfollowed each other on Instagram. So we can keep an eye on that for possible drama. And uh, (laughs) I will also note that... um, the quality of pro Bolsonaro memes on Telegram, which, you know, these are things that are produced by sort of like a very sophisticated campaign, has markedly dropped since last night. In fact, most of the memes that I've seen have sort of been various levels of cope calling for, uh, you know, video assisted referee to offer extra time by the military coming in and resolving the problem. So I would say that uh, there's a general feeling that Bolsonaro is very isolated. And I mean, it's quite telling that he's just sulking by himself and not saying anything in public. Yeah, I mean, Bolsonaro had this huge uh, coalition that he built, but uh, and, and it, it, it's new in a sense that it's it's much more this radical far-right ideology. Um, but Brazilian politics has always been this, you know, coalition base. And, you know, a lot of the, the corruption that exists in the system, that's inherent in the system, um, regardless of who's in charge, uh, is often to basically buy the allegiance of the majority of the of the political establishment, which is connected to all the different oligarchical clans. Like I was just reading an article earlier today about, you know, who won and who lost in this year's election. And it was, it was literally uh, listing clans using the word clan, because I mean, that's what it is here. Right. I mean, uh, and so these, these people have been in, uh, you know, within the power system often for generations. Um, and, Therefore, they're, they're not stupid. They know which ways the winds are blowing. Oftentimes, they'll be kind of uh, hedging their bets both ways. And so as soon as they saw this, this result, the, the quick um, response from international leaders, including the U.S., was extremely, was extremely quick to, to congratulate and, and confirm the election um, and of the, uh, the money to lead that, that seems to be going behind Lula and his, his uh, so-called uh, broad coalition. Um, it's just, it's, they started jumping ship and, and we haven't heard much from the military. Um, and we saw, uh, yesterday the, the police, you know, tilting help trying to tip the scales in Bolsonaro's favor. Um, but that's because, uh, the people who now run those certain police institutions were handpicked as, as loyalists, uh, by Bolsonaro. And so, uh, it's not necessarily indicative of, of the police forces themselves, but their leadership. But I mean, definitely there's, uh, the majority of, of these federal police forces tend to skew more Bolsonaro than, than Lula. I mean, they're, they're cops after all. Um, but yeah, the, the, the first round election, Bols- Lula won, was up by 30, by six, by six million votes. Um, and that's a, a very large margin, um, considering that he won 60 million, uh, in the second round. Uh, and so throughout, at the beginning, you know, you would expect people to be very hopeful because, oh, it's in the bag, six million. No one's ever come back from from that type of a, of a margin before. But the the Congress and the and the Senate and a lot of the the gubernatorial races 
went far more Bolsonaro than expected, and Bolsonaro did way better than uh, the polls suggested. So there was actually, you know, this this feeling, this energy of defeat on both on both sides. Um, and then along this month, Bolsonaro just kept gaining ground, gaining ground. You know, maybe not necessarily in in, in all of the polls because they tend to skew and they weren't very reliable, so you can't really rely on that. But you just saw these indications of him being able to use state power to, you know, in a, an attempt to buy votes, to buy support, to push his agenda. Um, and you saw these these little victories happening and, and people were just getting more and more nervous as the date approached and the and the numbers sort of started to converge. And so with that, um, plus it, this brazen attempt to try to intimidate voters by the, the federal highway police, um, where they set up hundreds of checkpoints, mostly in areas that are predominantly pro-Lula. Um, you know, yesterday was really tense. People just did not have a, a really clear picture of, of whether or not uh, Lula was going to be able to carry this out, considering all of the billions and billions of dollars of state money that Bolsonaro has invested uh, illegally in his reelection campaign in, in, you know, through various uh, means. Um, so it was, it was pretty tense, and everybody who um, you know, would like to see the Amazon continue to exist and, and Brazilian, some form of Brazilian democracy to continue to exist definitely uh, had to wait until like eight o'clock last night to breathe a sigh of relief. So let's talk, and maybe Andrew, you can you, you can start us off on this one. Let's talk in a little bit more detail about what happened yesterday with the these roadblocks, which were just um, I think surprising to me. I mean, admittedly, I'm sort of uh, you know very much an outsider to this, but I, I I mean, I had assumed that Bolsonaro would attempt something like cooking the vote count or disputing it after the fact, but to to see him just put cops in the streets to literally stop people from voting I was was more brazen than I thought he was prepared to go. Can you talk a little bit about what happened um, and did it did it surprise either of you to to see uh, to see him make that that attempt? I mean, I could see Bolsonaro uh, doing just about anything to stay in power. So that's like him try- wanting to do something is uh, or anything is really would not be surprising. But the fact that he's able to articulate this and get these, uh, you know, these powerful institutions mobilized and to, to do it in this way, that was surprising. It's the first time that something like this has ever happened in, in Brazil. Um, you know, it's noteworthy that uh, a lot of Trump supporters and Republican um, uh Operatives have been coming down to Brazil for years now um, to to give tips and and exchange information with the Bolsonaro family. So uh, you know, in in the U.S., uh, everyone the Republicans' favorite pastime is is voter suppression. So it's 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 not particularly surprising that they would try to find a way to do voter suppression in Brazil. Voting is mandatory, um, just for context. So it's it's not as common of a of a measure, although there are some. Um, and I think the, 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 so, so anyway, what happened was three days earlier, as we found out after this all started happening, there was a meeting in the, uh, presidential residence, um, with Bolsonaro's top campaign advisors. And they were talking about ways that they could, uh, help tip the scale. And they had this idea of, of doing, uh, roadblocks and they used the federal highway police, the federal police, uh, and at least one location, there was army troops involved, which I would like to know a lot more about, but that's still being investigated. And in some states, there was uh, state police forces involved too. And they were basically setting up these roadblocks 
Um, basically, you know, checking if the tires are, are too worn or if the license is expired, if the headlights are out, um, and trying to find ways to intimidate voters to get them off so the street. They were trying to be helpful. I mean, it's, exactly. you know, it's a service, public service. Protecting law and order. I mean, it's very important. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this was uh, the, the Lula's party was tipped off to this ahead of time. And they actually got the these uh, superior electoral court uh, president to to put an injunction on this before uh, the day before. And the the. The highway police chief basically said, who, by the way, declared support for uh, Bolsonaro on Instagram the night before, basically said, we're going to keep going with this operation, uh, you know, comma, as in the parts of it that do not violate the ruling. But obviously, they were clearly violating the ruling. There's evidence that they were they were targeting uh, pro Lula areas and, uh, you know, cars, uh, uh, vehicles that had Lula supporters in it. So this was really troubling, and it wasn't really clear in the beginning how, how influential it was, how widespread, how if they were actually stopping people from voting, and, and if so, how many. Um, it probably did stop some, although the, the authorities said that no one was impeded from voting. I don't know how, I don't know how they could possibly um, know that for a fact, but I think they were just, they, they clearly had a lot of information. They clearly had a conversation with the, the leader of the highway police and some sort of, of deal where the, either you know he said that he was going to stop. They felt like it wasn't actually going to be enough to tip the scales, um, but they wouldn't fall out and said, "Oh, this 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 didn't um, have any impact." It, it clearly was something very concerning, um, and a lot of people were saying, "Oh, it's the beginning of a coup," um, which you know, reasonable. Uh, we didn't call it that because you know there's so many ways that people legally and illegally try to influence elections um, in, in any country. In, in Brazil, I mean, Lula uh, uh, Bolsonaro did at least 18. Things with with uh, public resource and public funds um, to try to uh, tip this election in his favor. Um, these things are illegal, um, but they're you know it's influencing the election. I don't think it, it came to the um, to the point of being you know, the beginnings of a coup. Because for me, you're you're going all in if you're doing a coup. So just speaking on that, and this might be for Ben. Uh, ben, did you did you hear people talking about the historical resonances of the '60s to the '80s period? I, I was just curious about how historical memory was working during the election. Well, I mean, I'm just going to say a few things, just expanding what Andrew was uh, talking about first. One thing is, uh, yeah, I mean, as I agree with him, that sort of anything uh, Bolsonaro is capable of anything. I mean, he's repeatedly said he either stays in power or dies. You know, or was imprisoned. You know, he's been going all in on the rhetoric. But what really was a bit surprising about this one, even though I'd heard the rumors, was that basically the entire narrative for the week had been focused on this uh, scandal about, uh, fake scandal about missing radio inserts in uh, some regional radio stations, particularly in the northeast of Brazil, which they were trying to manufacture in this case, that there'd been widespread censorship to justify some sort of uh, narrative questioning the election results. The, the whole story was so weak that they even abandoned just before the election, you had Bolsonaro officials saying, oh, well, we know we were wrong. We were just thrown out of um, the courts. So I was expecting something along those lines, the specific intervention on the day. So there was about 560 uh, different roadblocks. And the other thing, in some places, there was military police going around and the buses telling people to vote, uh, not for the guy who was imprisoned. You saw some army activities in uh Mitterroy, um, which is just across the bay from uh, Rio de Janeiro. But um, my feeling is, uh, you know, it, it kind of, it was sort of 
couple of things going on here. One is that um, they tried their best. This is what they had. And it still wasn't enough to tip the scales. And second of all, I think there was a sort of political calculation by the head of the electoral court, Supreme Court Justice, yesterday, in which he decided that basically the goal of this operation is probably to trigger response from the electoral court in the bigger crisis. So he decided, uh, you know, let's just say everything's okay, no one's been for voting, and carry on that way and still keep the integrity of the election. I think that's probably maybe what they were aiming for. In terms of historical memory, so, um, yeah, I mean, on the streets last night, people were, and also on the Luna's final rally, which was gigantic on Saturday in Sao Paulo. I mean, you hear the sort of songs from the dictatorship, you say dictatorship never more, the slogans are there. Um, in some respects, I felt that in 2018, when I was here for the election, there was a more of a sort of focus on dictatorship. There was a lot uh, more articulation of the rhetoric. Now, uh, the election has been fought on slightly different terrain, but, you know, there is a memory of, uh, one, um, the fact that there was a military coup, and there's a long history of military coups in Brazil. This is something that's definitely part of the culture here. I mean, it's only really been two times in Brazilian history we can truly say it's experienced, the country's experienced some form of democracy. Uh, and uh, I would also say in terms of the, you know, Bolsonaro has always been very uh, explicit about his love of dictatorship, you know, his praising for the worst excesses and torturers of the dictatorship and you know you'll have more military officials serving and officers serving in his government than during the height of the dictatorship so there's definitely that going along and of course his uh, vice candidate in both elections has been a general the interesting thing as andrew points out is that uh yeah the military's been very silent i haven't heard anything beyond some weird memes and fake news from bolsonaro groups about what they're thinking but i mean i suspect they're probably negotiating some sort of payoff which is what they do uh, again, these are different, another coalition that needs to be paid off if you want to rule book Brazil is the military. And so in that sense, uh, and also there's a sense that, I mean, I just wrote an article for the nation, which I'll give you a preview, which I made a sort of straightforward, uh, reference to the events of the fifties in, there's been only a very few instances, especially one which has been such a threat of a coup as now in which Brazil has had some sort of, uh, ability to, itself back from the brink and keep democracy going usually instead of a rupture there is more like a coup in which the forces that sort of run brazil the ruling class make some sort of compact change things around and stay in power but in 1954 brazil uh, was under rule of president getulio vargas who had been dictator but come back on a, a sort of more populist pro-worker redistributive nationalist agenda uh basically there was an attempted coup against him following a corruption scandal and uh, facing no other option, he decided to kill himself and wrote a letter, a suicide letter, in which he told people he was under attack from occult anti-national forces, forces which subvert the Brazilian people. And famously, his suicide triggered these mass protests over Brazil, which were took to the streets and stopped the coup. Now, this is obviously different. One, uh, Lula's not, never been dictator. And two, he uh, you know, won on the elections. But this is a moment in which some sort of uh, popular sovereignty exercised in Brazil has actually been able to sort of triumph over authoritarian forces with all the caveats about, you know, payoffs, difficulty of governing, broad coalitions aside. I think that itself is has some historical resonance because uh, I can't think of an, an election which has really uh, historically been able to pull Brazil back from a crisis, and this might be it. So, uh, 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 of course, we don't know what's going to happen under government, but that's the sort of... Uh, positive spin on it.
And and there's something else that's worth mentioning about the the history is that you know 1964 most academics here don't refer to it as a military coup they call it a military civil coup for many academics um, and that's because you know there was a huge involvement of of the um, you know the industrial elite the the wealthy oligarchs of the country um, that were lockstep with with the military they they were the ones that were handing. Uh, suitcases full of cash and that were um, creating the the direct links with the CIA. Um, and this time around, the you know the elite were were very much pro Bolsonaro in, in 2018. Um, and also that his movement was quite ascendant. So yeah, there was a lot more talk about um, about coup and about dictatorship and about you know the risk to democracy. Uh, but I feel like in in this election, uh, at least especially in the last year, he's sort of been wheezing. I mean, he's still quite strong. He's like he got fifty eight million votes. It's nothing to to sneer at, uh, not at all. But uh, his movement has been less cohesive. There's been a lot more ruptures. A lot of people that jump, important people that jump ship, particularly in you know the the financial elite and the in the industrial elite, um, because they saw that these Bolsonaro years haven't been great for them um, financially. Um, so I feel like that in the last few months has probably tamped down most concerns about the possibility of some sort of, uh, you know, democratic rupture. But I mean, who the hell knows? I mean, it's, you're a new territory. Uh, you, you're not sure, you know, who, what he's, how far he's going to push, how, what sort of leverage he has over his allies, what, what he could get, uh, you know, enough crazy generals to do, but generally speaking, you know, the, the, those oligarch parties and politics and the, the uh, military elite, they need continuity. They are not going to take any huge risks um, to go out and, and risk their, their cushy lifestyles and their, and their power and privilege. Um, and it seemed like because of the, the, the support that was, that was going away from, uh, from Bolsonaro and towards Lula, it seemed like a much, much bigger risk, which also makes the question of, well, what's Lula's presidency actually going to look like? I mean, if, exactly. if he's got all these people in line with <laughs> yeah. him and he's, you know, gave a shout out to Wall Street during his um, his speech, uh, his victory speech last night, um, you know, how uh, how leftist is is right. this supposedly leftist government going to be? Uh, obviously, it was, it was the best, it was the the most left choice amongst the, the possibilities, uh, the viable possibilities, but uh, it's going to be interesting um, to see how what sort of deals he's making and, and what that ends up becoming for, for his policies. So just based on that, this is something that I've been thinking a lot because I was I was doing a live podcast uh, a week or so ago and someone asked that exact question. And so I wanted to ask you both about the, sort of the structures here. You know, we, we hear about a, a sort of a new pink tide or whatever you uh, may have. But um, I was thinking, uh, what does this auger? What, what do you think are the structural impediments? What do you think are the possibilities? What what is the war of position that could be waged here? Um, well, I mean, Brazil is in a sort of slightly different situation to uh, some of the other uh, countries in terms of this narrative of a new pink tide. In terms of uh, the one, the Workers Party. Uh, is much older than the movements in many respects, the parties that emerged that took power first in the first pink tide and the second pink tide. Uh, it's a, in many respects, it's the only real political party in Brazil in the sense that it's the only party with some sort of significant party identification, some sort of coherence, ability to mobilize, 
Uh, most parties here just function as sort of influence trading schemes or franchises to be sold out to various oligarchy, regional oligarchies. Um, so in that sense, this, my view is that despite, you know, the setbacks, both in governance, uh, sort of demobilization of the working class, uh, deindustrialization, loss of some of its union base and, uh, you know, lack, uh, loss of militancy and uh, sort of bureaucratization of the leadership. Uh, and of course being taken out of power, being blamed for everything, having its, you know, founding leader locked up. Uh, the Workers' Party has been able to withstand almost by default the political forces against it, and it's left it as the only sort of force with en masse base that's able to compete with Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro's rise was contingent basically on the swallowing and destruction of the center-right through uh, various um, complicated processes, but basically what it did was the center-right, in order to get the Workers' Party out of government, radicalized and got consumed by this movement. So when in power, Bolsonaro has achieved something which is very important to note, and Andrew mentioned this earlier, in terms of when we speak about billions spent. What they effectively did is they used the leaders of the state to create something called the secret budget, which effectively was a, is a systemic way for um, Bolsonaro forces to uh, buy support in Congress through approving things with basically no overs oversight to uh, you know allied deputies. We're talking about billions and billions. So uh, the secret budget itself is i think something uh you know somewhere around eight nine billion dollars being spent since 2018 possibly more again we, i mean twin uh we it's hard to know exactly the figures and this has been used not only to buy support but to create a recomposition of the what we call the central the big center the traditional sort of uh amorphous um rent uh of seeking influences with misleading names of parties into something new. So it's really consolidated itself in two parties. One is called the Liberal Party, which Bolsonaro ran as the candidate for, and the other is the Union Brazil, which is a reformulation of the most traditional party of the dictator, of the military. And between these two parties, there have uh, been a sort of uh, concentration rather than dispersion of the political class in new forms, which they've used this money to consolidate their power. And this is a, not only represents a more entrance of the extreme right into this position, but a consolidation of their power. And these forces will continue going forward. And now, while they're completely opportunistic there, I would say they're more to the right traditionally where the central was, just purely the new entrance of the sort of new generation of political leaders coming from, uh, you know, a lot of them are ex-cops or have links to the, the mafia cops or from, you know, agricultural business, sort of uh, this new evangelical Brazil uh, around, centered around this big agro, which is now the major driving force of the economy. Uh, but these guys uh, are you know, culturally different and a bit of a new entrance in terms of the traditional oligarchies in Brazil. And now, while they're open for business, what sort of deals can they negotiate with sort of this more extreme version of the Centrion rather than the more traditional oligarchical element? So that's one impediment. The second thing is Brazil's economy has improved, and it's one of the reasons that actually uh, Bolsonaro's support was a bit higher than expected. Over the last year, employment is up. Um, so uh, the question is, uh, if economic growth continues, that does provide some ways of keeping everyone in check and keeping coalition together, but it's not guaranteed. Uh, the third thing I'll just state, because I mean, there's a lot to get in here, is the other factor is that one of the things that Bolsonaro did to try to get elected was they, using this uh, secret budget, basically got the, co the Congress to change the constitution, which had Previous limits on public spending passed by Michelle Temer after she came to power through a, 
congressional coup uh, to effectively open the taps to just give extra welfare payments in the billions of dollars as an attempt to buy votes. I mean, there was all sorts of shenanigans involving, for instance, like handing over all of these welfare recipients' uh, personal details to payday loan companies and other very exploitative things. But um, according to some estimates, um, and this is from uh, Enrique Mireles, who was a ex-finance minister of Brazil, he's definitely not on the left, uh, and possibly might be finance minister again, uh, he said that the actual cost, if you factor in anything in terms of all of these sort of payments going, is like close to $50 billion. So um, the question is, uh, then, is there sort of financial cliff? Are there bombs loading for this government once it comes into power? There's something to keep an eye on. I mean, effectively, something else to consider, and then I'll hand over to Andrew after this, is that uh, because, you know, this government has clouded itself in secrecy, they put 100-year sealing orders on so much of what they've done, and, and they've got the secret budget. There's, you know, we don't know exactly what the Bolsonaro government's been up to in many respects, and how many sort of uh, institutional hurdles, sabotage, acts of destruction, and, you know, hidden traps will be found once you actually take power. I mean, there could be a lot. And we're talking about like the systemic gutting of state agencies, putting into place, you know, extreme right elements in power in very key parts of the state, including the Federal Highway Police, who the guy was supposedly recruited by uh, Flavio Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro's oldest son and a senator. So these sort of things will come apparent. I mean, it's quite hard to know right now just how many problems a potential government will face will come into power. Now, that said, uh, to make the sort of final broader point, is almost by default, in the fact it was the only party left that would defend the constitution and the order established in, after the dictatorship, um, the Workers' Party has become, you know, the force of order after emerging as a sort of threat to order, the radical left threat to the established powers in Brazil. And that's kind of the transformation. I think it's quite similar to what you've seen in s some respects, but a little bit different in that effectively the center-right and the extreme-right in Latin America both proven completely unable to govern through a crisis and offer anything to the working class. So almost by default, the uh, people remember that center-left or left forces can actually provide something and have come into power that way. Yeah, um, I mean, you should remember that in 2018, when Bolsonaro won, he had a, a pretty broad coalition of this, you know, quote-unquote center or centerone, which is just, you know, the oligarchical elites um, and the right. Um, and a lot of those people, um, you know, have have shaved off his coalition and, and are now uh, in on Lula's team again. Um, and the, uh, even some of the ones that were with Bolsonaro to the end, they're, they're going to join his coalition very soon uh, after negotiations. Uh, these people, they knew exactly who Bolsonaro was, you know, for for decades. Um, all of the, you know, the the heinous things that he says and, and believes that that get international headlines. Um, the reason why they, you know, they jump ship was because he didn't follow through on all of his, you know, extremist neoliberal economic promises um, to slash all the public spending and slash rights and, you know, make Brazil even more of a, of a tax haven for, for the wealthy and, and for corporations. Um, and also, you know, that he broke a lot of promises to benefit for his own self-interest when he needed to. Um, I mean, there was some stuff about uh, some people probably felt uh, they, they didn't like how, how much he damaged uh, Brazil's international credibility, but in large part uh, that was to be that was easy to to foresee uh, when they were supporting him in 2018. So those people are now with 
Lula, and they're going to be wanting the same sorts of uh, neoliberalization uh, that Bolsonaro is promising, privatization, etc. Whereas, you know, Lula's uh, platform has always been one to uh, reindustrialize wealth transfers, invest more in, in social spending to combat, you know, hunger, health, education, uh, more education, more social services. Um, and, you know, the, the, the editorial from Folha, which is, you know, the, one of the most influential newspapers in, in Brazil that's been very, you know, proudly asserting their, their anti-Bolsonaro opposition position, even though they were, they were locked up with the dictatorship this whole time. And they were influ- influential in, in creating the, the political mood that got Bolsonaro elected. Uh, today, this morning, they said that they, they want, that Lula needs to um, uh, pivot to the to the center. You know, basically, you got elected for as a left wing politician, and the people expect the sorts of policies that you did when you were president. Um, but that doesn't matter because we want you to do the things that you know we wanted Bolsonaro to do and failed. Um, obviously, they don't put it in that language, but it's essentially what they're what they're asking for. Um, and so he's going to be getting a lot of pressure to do that. And also, uh, you know, the secret budget that. Um, that Ben was mentioning, it's it's raised the the stakes for for buying off support in in this country. Um, it's way bigger than the scandals that Lula was accused of and and sent to jail for, because you know in those it was like Petrobras that he was accused of, they were they would do a big construction project and they'd you know get a three percent kickback and they used that to fund um, their their next election cycle. They said that, you know, they went to, into his private pockets, but they couldn't prove that. Um, but in this, with the secret budget, there's, there's no way to really track what's, what's going on. And there's cases, just these outrageous cases of, you know, uh, in a town that where the congressman that's uh, pro Bolsonaro, they, they uh, build for the equivalent of extracting 14 teeth for every person that lived in this little town. Um, obviously, uh, they didn't do that. This is just, you know, pure, instead of taking 3%, they're taking a hundred percent of, of this budget that's, that's, uh, going. And so, you know, this is the context that Lula's going to be coming into where he needs to get the support of these people. And they're used to getting uh, a, a very, very high, uh, price to be able to join his coalition and for him to be able to pass anything. So he's going to get a lot of pressure to basically go this, you know, Clintonite Blairite. Uh, uh, route where he's the face of of a of a left of leftism, but actually he's more effective than the right can be in implementing a right wing agenda, and and that's basically what the you know, his base and his allies are going to be pressuring him not to do. Um, and we'll see what what he's able to do and how much room he has to maneuver. Um, because you know if he if he fails, then the alternative could be far worse uh, in, in, you know, four years or less. Um, so I think um, for reasons that you guys have already stated, we're, we're sort of in agreement that that if there was going to be a challenge to the outcome of this election, the window for that, by virtue of the fact that Bolsonaro has disappeared from public view for the last several hours, uh, is sort of closing. I mean, world leaders have come out and... You congratulated Lula. A lot of Bolsonaro supporters within Brazil have conceded the outcome of the election. He's, he doesn't have much of a leg to stand on. But what I have seen um, have been reports of Bolsonaro supporters, you know, at the kind of 
you know, more ordinary Brazilian level uh, engaging in some uh, activities, you know, sort of expressing their uh, outrage to, uh, about this outcome. We've seen, I, I've seen reports of truckers blockading highways. Uh, that's the big one. Uh, so I'm curious what what the two of you, you know, being there have seen in this regard. And, and does it, do you feel like this is something that could become a problem, you know, even, you know, with Lula's not going to take office until January 1st. Is this something that could be a problem, uh, you know, over the next couple of months? Like, could it develop that quickly into a, a serious thing? Or is it just sort of uh, acting out in the immediate wake of the, the vote? Well, I mean, of course, it's hard to uh, predict anything. So uh, first, we should be noted that truckers and truckers unions have been a solid Bolsonaro base that have had made several, uh, you know, pro-Bolsonaro interventions in recent politics, including mobilizing some of their leaders were key in mobilizing sort of coup rallies of the last few years. Now, uh, I just checked the news before this program. There's uh, blockades in 11 states uh, in as well as the federal district, which is Brasilia, the capital. Uh, another friend of mine just uh, told me this morning that they couldn't go to Rio by bus because the roads are closed and Rio and Sao Paulo, it's a very major route. So there's definitely, you know, a potential. This is like organized. I mean, truckers have, you know, as Teamsters unions approved, have some sort of disruptive power. So I wouldn't dismiss their threats, but they have been a radicalized sort of vanguard sector. And not all truckers, but an element of the truckers in terms of Bolsonarismo, in terms of there's an organized working class element, it's the truckers. Uh, the second thing that should be pointed out, and this is something that uh, happened really over the last week of the campaign, which is perhaps a sign of things to come or perhaps uh, saving grace until the electoral result, is that, uh, you know, in Brazilian elections, you can always assume that there would be some crazy black swan event happening, you know, unpredicted. In uh, 2018, it was Bolsonaro getting stabbed, which played a significant role in being elected. Over the course of the last week of the election, all the black swan events, while disturbing, seem to favor Lula. Well, there's three, and uh, I'll leave uh, the third one I'll talk about to Andrew because the intercept was crucial in sort of breaking the story. Um, but the first one was a guy called Roberto Jefferson, who is a former congressman, and uh, he has been uh, he's sort of like the classic parasitical Brazilian oligarchical politician because he's been at the core of every single major scandal in Brazil since 1985, uh, from you know the impeachment of Fernando Collor in uh, 1992, uh, which weeped to the Mensalão, the monthly payment scheme, which nearly broke uh, Lula's first government, which Andrew made some uh, reference to in terms of, uh, you know, this corruption scandals to build coalitions in Brazil. He uh, was, of course, his party was involved in Lava Jato. And now he's been a this sort of classic parasite, uh, but also he's a longtime ally and friend of Bolsonaro, a close personal friend in his words. Uh, Bolsonaro was briefly a member of his party. Uh, his sons and ex-wife were employed by him in some very sort of suspicious, sort of repaying uh, gigs when uh, one of his sons was 18, receiving like 10,000 hash, which was a lot of money at the time, uh, a month. But he had his, he'd been to prison after snitching on everyone. Uh, and he basically reinvented himself out of the wilderness uh, in his party as this extreme right, gun nut, anti-democratic, hardcore Bolsonaro support. So he drives around on a motorbike, poses with guns, threatens the Supreme Court, rants about Jews killing, sacrificing children. Uh, that's all, you can look it up, it's all true. Uh, but basically what happened was uh, he's been sort of this vanguard of people threatening the Supreme Court, the sort of more pro-coup mobilizing on the Bolsonaro front. And uh, his threats against the Supreme Court got him uh, arrested and he was under house arrest. And then he in violation of his uh, house arrest conditions, released a video 
in which he called the Supreme Court justice. They used a prostitute, and amid suspicions, he was extremely well armed and had an arsenal at his house. They sent the federal police out there to, um, you know, pick him up. Uh, sent him back to real prison, and he responded with 50 shots of assault, assault rifle fire and three grenades, leading two agents injured, and there was a seven-hour standoff or eight-hour standoff, and only a fake uh, Greek Orthodox priest who was his dummy candidate in the election to help Bolsonaro, again, all crazy stuff, came to negotiate a deal, and then he was put to prison. But this was extremely damaging in a few respects. One, it's uh, you have a, as much as you can try to deny it, and we tried, you have this very close pro-Bolsonaro supporter doing extremely unpredictable and crazy things, shooting at lawmen, and uh, it's, you know, probably elements within the security establishment, especially within the federal police, who are not happy by the fact that, uh, you know, they, they, they treat him with kid gloves after, you know, firing three grenades and 50 shots at the police. Uh, he probably was hit a little bit by that. Uh, you know, this unpredictable, crazy, uh, uh, sort of authoritarian side. The second one was, uh, which I'll speak about, I'll leave the third one to Andrew, was a another uh, very close Bolsonaro ally, the sort of lunatic congresswoman from Sao Paulo, the second most bet- voted Congre- uh, person, member of Congress in the Brazil's biggest state, Carlos Zambelli. Uh, during, basically, there was a rally a few blocks away, which was at the Lula's final rally of the campaign, got into a confrontation with a uh, black Lula supporting journalist uh, outside a bar, and uh, she pulled out a gun, fired some shots, and chased him down the bar, and like it was really ugly stuff. Uh, she claimed, of course, that she was the victim of uh, being assaulted, but video footage showed afterwards that uh, she fell and lost her shit and started firing shots and screaming at him. Uh, yeah, so that's another standard, sort of unstable license to act crazy Bolsonaro supporter. And I think that did have some impact on, you know, the traditional forces saying, we don't really want to go this route of just letting these nut jobs, uh, you know, define our politics. So I think that did have some effect in the election. The third one, which is more, even more sinister, if anything, involves the a uh, killing of a man uh, associated um, during a campaign event of the Bolsonarista victorious candidate for governor here in Sao Paulo, which I will hand over to Andrew as the intercept did much to break the story. Um, yeah, this case is is pretty bizarre. Um, so the a very Influential minister from from Bolsonaro's uh, presidency, Tarcísio de Freitas, um, infrastructure minister. He he's not from uh, São Paulo, but he's running for uh, he ran for the governor of São Paulo because it's you know it's, it's the biggest, most influential governorship in the country. Um, and they basically had a plan to try to put all of his most famous uh, aides in in key positions. Um, and so during this campaign he decided to show up at a favela to this this launch of a of a you know a public service project this new this new project that they were launching and he basically just decided he was coming it wasn't very coordinated with the institution they were sort of surprised by the whole situation uh, they had cops uh, coming in and like being very truculent um, ahead of time and it created a lot of tension in the area um, and they so they end up getting pushing the the uniform cops uh, further away to to calm down the situation. Um, but he had all these uh, undercover cops that were out in the street. And while uh, Tarcísio de Freitas uh, is in the building for this event, where he was supposed to just be like ten minutes, but it was he stayed for much longer. Um, 
apparently these these two mo- guys in a motorcycle were were circling around. Uh, apparently they uh, they said, "Oh, you're not welcome here." Um, and when they came back the second time, and they were and they were filming with their phone. And when they came back the second time, uh, one of these plainclothes uh, security officers uh, shot the the guy in the back dead. Um, it was it was um, presented by them as they were attacked by drug dealers with uh, assault rifles and pistols, and they returned fire. Um, but what we were able to report was that, um, in fact, you know, four eyewitnesses said there was no um, there was no exchange of fire. It was an assassination of an unarmed person, um, and they immediately tried to cover it up. And the person who tried to cover it up, and there's a recording of this. Uh, telling a, a camera operator to to delete the footage that he shot of the of the aftermath of this incident, happens to work for uh, the Brazilian version of the CIA, Abin, um, and Abin has been very much become like this uh, secret arm of of the Bolsonaro machine, um, and you know became much more personalized and much less institutional, and, and they're not supposed to be operating um, on Brazilian soil either, but they always have. Um, so we first revealed that the, this Abin connection, which was already a, a scandal in and of itself, you know, why does a gubernatorial candidate have uh, a, a member of the Brazilian CIA uh, doing his part of a security detail? And you know, I said, oh, he's actually off duty. He's he's on license. He's just doing it on his own accord. Um, and then the next day we revealed uh, that actually they had killed this unarmed person and tried to cover it up and use it for political advantage. Bolsonaro was talking about it uh frequently in his, during his campaign and trying to turn this into, you know, like, oh, they're trying to kill us. They're trying to attack us. The, the, the drug dealers hate us. Um, whereas in reality, everything that Bolsonaro has done with uh, making guns more accessible and, you know, ending, creating impunity and, and, and getting rid of the, the infrastructure of the government has only helped organized crime. I mean, organized crime loves Bolsonaro. Uh, there's so many guns that have been put out in the street that you cannot trace and they're of higher caliber and, and newer quality because of the the dozens of of of, um, of mandates and laws that he's passed. Um, I mean, so, the, John, the guns used by Roberto Jefferson. Just quick question, Andrew. Um, yeah. Is it true? Uh, I saw this going around that the agent in question was also at the campaign event where Bolsonaro got stabbed in 2018, or was that just a you know? Gossip? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But anyways, it, it ended up becoming quite a big scandal, and it was they, they you know, uh, the other candidate, the Bolsa, the, Lula, the Lula candidate, uh, you know, mentioned us like six times in the last debate, and it was his closing argument was this case. But you know, nonetheless, uh, this guy still was able to to carry the election, and he won uh, in Sao Paulo. And I think that's a actually a, a pretty strong indication of of the power of the of the Bolsonaro movement that continues and will continue in the uh, Lula administration that you know this guy's not from there he doesn't know anything about Sao Paulo he doesn't know anything about the geography or the locations or the history um and he's he's a doofus um uh and is doing these like you know very like militia like criminal uh, schemes um and associated with this totally discredited leader and yet he they they won in the most populous and most uh uh, in the richest state in in Brazil, so uh, you know it's not all it's not all good news. Uh, I'm just going to jump in there. Um, also, I mean that's another important aspect of that 
is Sao Paulo has been more or less a one-party state for 28 years under the uninterrupted rule of uh, the Pes de Be, the traditional party of the center-right. And uh, this is the first time the Pes de Be uh, will not be running Sao Paulo. Uh, and, and so in that respect, he comes in from outside, disrupts the traditional power arrangements of the state and, you know, takes over. That's a sign that the um, effective uh, reach of Bolsonarismo and consuming the center-right is something that's going to continue. I mean, you know, the, these are the voters that elected Tarsisio, uh, like the traditional interior center-right voters that kept Sao Paulo as the respectable political state for so long. And now they're voting for like a uh, very sinister Luciano guy with no connection to uh, Sao Paulo. And even worse, uh, he's from Rio, which is traditionally the rival. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, I think this is the big takeaway for the uh, globally, right? That like when you when you put your foot on the gas uh, on this, you know, accelerating these these uh, extremist tensions uh, and you and you allow this far right movement in to put pressure on the left or to move the politics to the right, uh, you, you really can't control it and you can't just put the cat in the bag after after it's done. I mean, uh, the 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 impact of of Bolsonaro, even if they lose, you know, all the next election, the next two, four, six, eight years. Um, it's still going to be felt um, in many ways for for at least a generation. I think that's a good place to leave it, guys. There's so much more to talk about. Um, we can talk about what this election means for the the Amazon. We can talk about uh, whether Bolsonaro is going to be looking at at uh, legal problems moving forward. But I think uh, you know we can do that uh, another time after the election results kind of shake out and, and we see which direction things are going. Uh, I want to thank Ben Fogel, uh, contributing editor at Jacobin and historian at NYU. Uh, I want to thank Andrew Fishman, uh, the president and co-founder of the newly independent nonprofit Intercept Brazil. We will have a link in the show description uh, for folks to to contribute to keep uh, to help support their work, which is uh, absolutely vital and and uh, would be great if anybody has the the wherewithal to do that. If you could could chip in something to help uh, support that place. Um, I want to say we're uh, going to release this as a free uh, special. This is the kind of thing that we do normally for subscribers, but this is so important. I think we're going to uh, make it free to everyone. But if you, uh, you know, uh, get something out of this episode, please uh, also consider supporting American Prestige and uh, subscribing because we, uh, we couldn't do it without your support. Uh, the last thing I want to say uh, is uh, both Danny and I uh, owe a lot to, to Michael Brooks, who used to be the co-host of The Majority Report, uh, hosted his own show, The Michael Brooks Show, uh, and uh, did so, so, so much to enlighten people, educate people on what was happening around the world, uh, and was a huge... Lula fan supporter. Uh, just check out massive. his interview with Lula. It, yes. it didn't really go viral, but really check it out. It's quite interesting. Just absolutely interesting. And um, I was just thinking about him last night as this, the results were coming in. And uh, Michael, of course, very tragically passed away in 2020. And um, I don't know if you go anywhere after you pass away, but uh, if Michael is out there somewhere, I hope he's watching this and, and smiling uh, at the result. I'm sure he would be happy to, to see it happen. Um, on that note, uh, thanks everybody for listening and uh, you know we'll talk to you soon.